Hi, and thank you for tuning in. You know, I don't know anybody doesn't have a hard time understanding what leadership is about. It has changed in the 21st century. And because it has changed, you know, there's not a lot of information out there that pulls it all together so that you have the steps you need to be the best leader that you can. Leadership is all about influence, and this podcast is about helping you understand how to influence others and to build the collaborative team that provides you the inclusive, high-performing workplace that you are looking for. Whether this is the first job you've had as a leader, whether you're an individual contributor, or you've been in leadership for 30 years, there is something for you on this particular podcast. It's called Remarkable Leadership Lessons, shared by Denise Cooper and her friends. And if you like, you can always go over to my website and pick up other gems that will help you become a remarkable leader. We've been talking an awful lot about creating engaging workplaces. And there are a ton of books, a ton of podcasts, a ton of things written, researched, etc. And we've been doing this for a long time now. It's, this is not something new. So the question we're going to talk about today is, what's getting in the way of us getting it right? And we're going to dig deep with my guest today, who's Robin Garrett. She is the CEO of Beamily and is a top TikTok expert on leadership known by millions for her witty insight and practical modern strategies. So if you don't believe me, just run over to TikTok and you get a, you have as many as you can scroll through before your fingers start hurting. She's also the author of Happy at Work, How to Create a Happy, Engaging Workplace for Today and Tomorrow. She also has a personal values workbook, which I personally think is extremely important if we're ever going to manage this whole idea of how do we create a high-performance, inclusive workplace. With that, good day, Robin. How are you today? I am great. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to ask a kind of a, a strange question. Beamily, how did you come up with that name? I will tell you, there is a fable that I particularly like, uh, and it's an old Aesop fable about the wind and the sun. So in this fable, the wind and the sun make a bet, and um, they're betting, they're looking down at this traveler. They say, I can make that traveler take off his cloak. So the wind goes first and um, blows down on the traveler as harshly and as coldly and as strongly as it can. But it doesn't work because the traveler just holds up his cloak really tight and it doesn't come off. So the sun goes second and the sun shines down on the traveler. It's warm, it's refreshing. And the traveler says, I feel good. I don't need this cloak. And the traveler takes it off on his own. So that is the concept behind Beamably, because I think we've had lots of leaders that have tried to bear down on employees as harshly as possible to squeeze them and get as much for their money as they could. And I think that that age of leadership has really worn us out and that it is time for a new style that is much more supportive and warm. And so that's where Beamably comes from. I find in my practice working with leaders, particularly those who are not in the top 100. You know, I always say there's a gap between the top 100 Fortune 100 companies and the yes. rest of them, and it's bigger than the Grand Canyon. <laughs> but the number one thing that, or it's certainly the number three to four things, is goes back to something that every year when we ask CEOs, what's the thing that worries them the most? And that is the lack of good leadership. 
you know, there's books, there's podcasts, there's training programs, etc. But I don't really find that managers and leaders really know how to create productive workplaces. You know, I'm working with a couple of companies now, good size. You know, they're not schlock companies. They do a couple million dollars. And their managers don't know how to write goals. Yeah. Our department doesn't know how to teach them how to write goals. Yeah. When I ask, where did you learn? They tell me about a book they've read or they, they went to a workshop or something like that. But I think there's this fallacy about how adults learn. And that is, if I show you the book, if I ask you to read it, take notes, and at some point you're going to get a test, but the test is real life every day yeah. and there's no feedback on it. What do you think? Oh, yeah. I think that it would be great if leaders across the board knew more about education styles and teaching techniques, mm -hmm. because, you know, since it is adults, there's an assumption that if I tell you what to do, you're going to go and do it. I just have mm -hmm. to check and make sure that you understood me. Mm -hmm. But that's not how anyone learns. I mean, we can do a little bit getting by that way. Um, but there's a lot of complexity and nuance to all of this. This is why coaching is so much more effective than some of these direct command and control styles. And if we don't think about that more intentionally, if we don't create more time and training and resources and support mm -hmm. for all of that, I'll tell you one mm -hmm. thing that I hear is that a lot of people feel like they're kind of operating without a roadmap because the people that have mm -hmm. managed them in the past didn't lead the way that they want to lead. And mm -hmm. so they don't have a clear role model, someone that they can model themselves after and really feel good about that style. Maybe they've had some books that really inspired them or one particular manager that they really admired or, you know, a little bit here and there. But there's a lot more, and this makes sense, right? Because there's a transition that's happening now. There's a lot more of the older style that's less effective now mm -hmm. than there is of that really effective. And it's true for culture too. Very few businesses really have this figured out and have that great top tier culture. Uh, and so there's not a lot to model yourself after. You know, I also hear that, you know, none of this, was, we wouldn't be in this bad of shape if it hadn't been for the pandemic, right? And I often think of the pandemic as kind of a festering pimple. You know, I'm a fan of Dr. <laughs> pimple Popper. Uh, it's it a lipoma. I know, it's a lipoma. Let's squeeze it out. And that's Get it all out. Yep. <laughs> because all the things that, you know, what became, what was normal is no longer normal. And we're really not very good at responding to new and change, et cetera. And that's generally not included in most training programs. What do you, in your book, Happy at Work, how to ha create happy, engaging uh, workplaces for today and tomorrow, what are some of the things that you would tell a manager or that if you had the magic wand, you'd just wave it and we would start fresh? Well, it's certainly true that we would be in a different place if the pandemic had not happened, mm -hmm. but we can't change that, right? Even I know lots of people who wish that they could rewind the clock, but you can't put everything back in the can once it's come out. So really, I think it comes down to three fairly basic things. If you want to give, you can't tell anybody how to feel. I think it's important to understand that because I get a lot of questions like that. How do I make my employees happy? And I think that's sort of the wrong idea. Um, that does get to the more artificial approach to culture that we see oftentimes, where mm -hmm. 
we just want to like sweep this problem away. I want to see big smiles on everybody's face so that I don't have to worry about this anymore. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. If you want to give someone a chance to feel happy at work, then they need the opportunity to feel three things. They need to feel safe. They need to feel respected and they need to feel valued. And if you can ensure that you've created an environment where those three things are possible, you have a much, much better chance of your employees being happy. And I promise you, go ask two people, somebody who loves their job, somebody who does not love their job, and ask them about those three things. Do you feel these things? And I will tell you, most of the time, the person who feels happy will say yes, and the person who feels miserable will say no. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways to achieve that. The book has 100 different tactics. Some of them are very approachable. Some of them are more complex. Um, But that's the idea that you're going for. So give us an idea of one that you've used in your practice and it's worked and one where you found that it wasn't working as well with a particular culture manager. And what did you learn from that? Sure. Uh, I'll give you one that I tell you definitely works. There's a lot around communication that can be Mm -hmm. very effective. And what's helpful about that is um, you can do it really locally. Sometimes we'll talk about some of like the big policy-wide things, and they're so complex and you need so many stakeholders to buy into the idea that it takes a really long time and that can be challenging. Mm -hmm. But if you can build empathy on your team and communication is a good way to support that, it can have an immediate effect. So I'll give you an example. One of the tips in the book is to adopt a zero interruptions policy. So there's, um, you know, not only is it respectful and it's a good practice for meeting communication in general, um, but it also kind of levels the playing field because one thing that we know from research that's been done is that men interrupt women significantly more than they interrupt other men. And that's not what we want. So if we can, if I can say like, this is going to be a part of my style, and then it's something also that I'm going to set as a communication standard for the team. And if I do have people who are a little bit more long-winded, maybe I'll work with them individually. Maybe we'll have a little signal where I tap on the table if I need them to wrap it up as a, as a, as a private reminder. Uh, those things can be really effective because you do want everybody to feel heard. That's how they can feel respected, valued. This is a safe place for me to speak. There's similar things. Um, something else that's sort of communication based is setting what our standard, uh, timing windows are. So mm-hmm. even if I'm gonna, you know, catch up on my emails late at night, I'm not gonna send them to you until the time we've agreed on the next morning. Because sending those emails at 1130 at night is a guaranteed way to deprive your employee of a good night's rest. Those types of things are things you can do right now. They're approachable, they're basic, and they make a great difference with the individual. Yeah, it's funny when you say that, you know, something as simple as sending an email at one o'clock in the morning or yeah. 11 o'clock at night sends a signal. And I, it's in every class that I have, the one thing that is one of the more difficult things for managers to accept is that every action they ha- they take is actually a signal on what the boundaries are in the workplace. Yeah. And that's a heavy burden for them. It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. When they want to, you know, still be approachable and they still want to be, you know, kind of one of the folks because, you know, they got promoted into this. Yeah. And they still have that mindset of it. But I, I the toughest lesson I think for all of us to accept is that when you have the title on, 
it changes the dynamics between people. Yeah. And everything you do sets the behavior and the boundaries that employees expect to learn to live by. Now, that's, that's right. not everyone. You know, we always have some rebels out there. But it doesn't take much for a leader to lean in and say, you know what, I really would wish that you would appreciate this. And people just got to go, okay. <laughs> yeah, you wield a lot of power, right? And I know managers are always very busy, right? I think a lot of the unintentional comes from that they're just so busy, they're trying to squeeze things in and they don't recognize the unintended consequences there. I have a lot of empathy for that because we've all been that person where we've got so many things on our plate. You're you're trying to do a good job, but you also have to sprint from thing to thing. That gets back to you know some fundamentals. We've got to make time in our day for people because leadership is all about people. Tell me when it doesn't go right. So this idea of I mean, we talked about one, managers forgetting that their behavior, not their intention, sets the mood, it sets the tone, and it it signals to everyone what's acceptable and not, the whole boundary idea. What's another thing that often inhibits managers from being as um, powerful as they, as they would like to be? Something that I see very commonly, and it also comes from a good place, is working too far outside of your purview. So mm. there may be true issues that you observe within the business or the organization that should change. Mm-hmm. And you can be an advocate for those changes, mm-hmm. but it can have the opposite effect that you want. If you tell your team members, I'm working on this, this is something that I'm going to solve, but it's not really within your purview to solve because those things are complicated and they're difficult. So if it's many levels or layers outside of your purview, you're going to have to go get budget approval. You're going to have to get buy-in. You're going to have to get lots of people to change their behavior. That's a fantastic thing. But set realistic expectations about how much of that you really can take on and how, in particular, how quickly it can happen. Because if Mm -hmm. you tell your team, and this happens a lot, we say we're rolling out this thing to the team, we we get them excited, this is the answer. If you tell them that, and then two, three months later, still they're struggling with the same issue, that is not good for trust. And Mm -hmm. that sort of damages some of those values that I know you're trying to establish, Mm -hmm. but it does take, you got to be somewhat practical about it. Mm -hmm. Don't burn yourself out in the process either, because that's hard on you too. I love the fact that you brought up trust. Uh, because it's one of those words that we all know it, but yet we don't know it. Yeah. I know when I feel like I trust you. Yeah. But if you had to tell me, if I had to tell you, what exactly did you do that made me trust you? It can get tough, tough to explain that. And I say always that the responsibility for building trust on the team does fall on the manager. So mm-hmm. I find interestingly that um, managers do tend to be a little bit more on the suspicious side. I would say that that's not true of everybody. It's just a trend. Mm -hmm. And there's probably good reasons why they've adopted that. But if, if you're struggling with that, I encourage you to time out and look at your team and say, it's my responsibility to have a strong team that I can trust, they trust me, and they trust each other. If you have not achieved that, don't do anything else. Either make sure you have the right people on the team, make sure you're spending good time with the team to build up the relationships. Operating from a place of deep mistrust is like operating from a deficit. 
I Mm -hmm. don't see how you could realistically achieve the three things that we Mm -hmm. talked about, safety, respect, and and making them feel valued without establishing trust first. And I I find that for the most part, the trust goes down, up and down. It wavers so much that, you know, we never really get to that trust, primarily because we assume everyone knows what to do. Yeah. And as I said at the beginning, I'm working with companies now that just really miss the boat on writing goals. I mean, they they understand how to write a goal for a year, but we don't live in a world where things are static at a year and everybody knows that it's going to change. And yet we're all kind of sitting around going, well, you know, that's what they want over there. And and, and I think they miss the idea of how much power and influence they have in their preview. Like you said, stay in your lane, but in your preview, there's n- no one has told you that you don't have to, you know, you have to have an annual goal if you're working in a company that does annual goals. But no one said that you couldn't make quarterly goals that would lead up to the annual goal so that your people are really clear on how they set priorities. Because I find the thing that takes people off rail a lot is the tyranny of the day. Phones ringing, yeah. 50 emails, you know, I just got two hours ago and I got to figure it out. And you get focused on that and you forget how to manage to the longer term kinds of things because you're busy. Yep. And too often, and it's really hard, especially since we're coming up on performance reviews, it's really hard to knock somebody down who's busy. Yeah, I've heard this phrase like the cult of busyness, right? There's mm-hmm. so much of that in corporations and businesses and I mean, like all working people because we're so eager to get things done, to feel productive, that we do get attracted to those types of tasks or activities because it, it feels good. Um, but that's not always aligned to our true goals and our best intentions. So mm-hmm. that can happen. And a lot of you can lose a lot of time that way. Your people, it can happen to your people. It can happen to you. Um, but it's not necessarily productive, even though it feels active. I'm going to switch gears a little bit because in your books and the, and the um, information that you provide, a lot of what you provide really is around understanding what your values are and finding your own meaning, regardless of the level that you're at or the role that you play in a particular company. Why do you spend so much time talking about that? My first book is about this. Uh, it's about establishing your personal values. And I find you were describing something similar to this earlier, that a lot of people know when they don't feel good, then they have that mm-hmm. ick feeling, but they don't always know why. And a lot of times that's because they haven't defined what they stand for and what they stand against. And here's what will happen if that's the case. You're in an environment that's much bigger than you, this big, not only the corporate world, but also your individual business. Mm -hmm. And that thing has a lot of rules, spoken and unspoken, and it will suck you up. And it will tell you what's right and wrong. And if you haven't figured out for yourself what you believe is right and wrong, then you'll have that bad feeling, but it will be very difficult to understand the severity of it. And it will be difficult to feel like you're doing what you're doing on purpose, it will feel like you're being forced to do it. So I'll give you some examples. A lot of people will tell you integrity is one of their Mm. top core values. It's one of the family integrity. There's some really popular ones and that's fantastic. But every person I speak to has a different definition of integrity. Mm. So my definition of integrity may be 
always do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But my business's definition of integrity might be, and this is a a real example, always deliver on your promises. Those are two totally different things. So if the business has promised something and I'm forced to go through with it, but I don't feel like it's the right thing, we might both be saying the word integrity, but there's actually a direct conflict in the values. Now, if you're conscious of that, then you can say, all right, I'm aware of this. I'm aware of the conflict and I'm going to make a choice that I'm going to accept this and I'm going to work within the confines of the business. But other times you might say, I recognize this direct conflict. It's too severe for me. And this isn't something that I can do long-term. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that whole idea of what comes up for me is in um, we want entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in the company. Yeah. And I, I often say, what does that really mean? Because yeah. if somebody goes off the rails, particularly if you're in a um, highly regulated industry um, and somebody goes off the rails, there's huge consequences for creating that entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial um, environment inside your company here. And that's that's the another way of thinking about exactly what you said is that we often say these things without thinking about what the implication from a behavioral standpoint and what are the boundaries and what are the things you can do, you can't do, or will allow to do, you know, when you when you do it. Yeah, the definitions are so important. Um, and you can't force someone to accept your definition. You can tell them what your definition mm-hmm. is, but you can't tell them what their definition is. That just simply doesn't work. Um, and that's why I think it's so important to take that time to define it for yourself. Nobody can really do it for you. Do you find that people are able to really define from a behavior point of view what their values mean? You know in terms of how do I make these go, no go decisions? With guidance, I think that they can. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the reasons that I created the workbook is to walk you through the process. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of how, how it works. We've got 300 values in there. And first you go through and you highlight all the ones that give you a positive feeling. Mm-hmm. Then you go through again, you highlight the ones that give you a negative feeling. Um, so there's some in there that you know are more commonly negative, but there's a lot that really could go either way. And it's just going to depend on you. Mm-hmm. And then you go through a process of slimming that down to your uh, top five for each. And then you give your definition. What does this mean to me? Here's when I feel this. Um, mm-hmm. And then you write some intentional statements about the future. I'll know I lived this value when I do this. So with mm-hmm. guidance, I think it's very possible. Without anybody to support you, I think it is pretty difficult. And if you're just sitting there with it in an unstructured way, Again, I think you have a lot more of the feeling that this isn't right. I don't like this. This is difficult for me, but not necessarily any tools to say how that, like what that's doing to you or what it means to you. I also think um, something that you said for a company or a culture, I'll say a work group, I'll narrow it down to a work group to be um, high performing and to really be a great place for people to work. You need safety. Yeah. And, and, we say safety, and that's none of those words that your safety and my safety are two different things. But the research really does talk about psychological safety. It yes. has a definition of what that is. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Psychological safety, it's something that is an important phrase that's been floating. You know, there's great books on this topic. Um, there's great experts that speak about this. But 
I don't think that we recognize how difficult and how fragile it can be. You put this effort in to build this or you talk about it, right? We do mm-hmm. a lot of, of talking about it, mm-hmm. but it is it is fragile. If I accidentally respond in a way that's too harsh, then I have done a little bit to damage the psychological safety. And and that's a mistake that people make. I make that mistake. Everybody makes mistakes like that. But if I do, I need to do a little bit of repair work to reestablish. And especially Mm -hmm. as you're navigating conflict or you're integrating new people into the group, all of those sorts of like easy stumbling points. Yeah. It's delicate and it's going to require constant maintenance. So this is not, you know, we're going to, we continue to talk about culture and the challenges with culture. Culture is not something that you make a bunch of posters and you stick them up in the kitchen and then like boxes are checked, good to proceed. No, it's something that requires ongoing maintenance because a lot of it is relationship-based and those things evolve every single day with every little interaction. And that requires you to be invested in it in an ongoing basis. And of course, every time you bring somebody else new in, yeah, it's an opportunity for the culture to shift and change in a positive way and or a negative way. Yeah. Particularly if you're not managing expectations around what it, the, what it is that's here. And there's always two cultures, right? There's the one we speak about stuff on the walls. And then there's the way things get done. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The stuff on the walls. Great. Um, I like that that's been defined. No problem. But that's not what culture is. Culture is what I experience within the business as the result of the daily actions and expectations and norms of the business. So if it says up on the wall, you know, family first, you hear that all the time. Um, But then I'm being asked every single night to stay till seven or eight o'clock. That's not that's not family first, right? The reality of that is work first. And nobody wants to say that because it doesn't sound good, but that's the message you're getting from the business. And that's the reality mm-hmm. that you're experiencing. And then, you know, we talk about, you can, we have open door policies. You can come and talk to me about anything. And yet you can't come and talk about how can we do the work differently because yeah. I'm a caregiver or because my kids in the champions and I need to travel with them. Uh, those kinds of things. We don't seem to embrace that, or they're literally just people who say remote work just doesn't work, even though it got proven, it was proven during the pandemic that we can make a way <laughs> yeah. for that to work. It doesn't have to be all the time, but it could be for sometimes. And And this idea of treating everyone the same way um, all the time is something that I find gets in the way of managers being really clear about their authority with other individuals. It's difficult for trust and that makes it difficult for safety. And the thing is, I think we've gotten to this place in business where we've spent a long time focusing on policy so that we could treat everybody the same so that we don't get Mm -hmm. caught in any discriminatory situations or any, Mm -hmm. you know, bad behavior. But then we're not challenging ourselves to do the right thing all the time. And there's a lot of rules in the corporate workplace that we say are true. Things like, no, you can't have a raise right now because it's not raise time that are only true because we've decided that they're true. If that's not right, and I would advise a lot of businesses to rethink policies like that because people are not going to wait 
12 to 14 months for a raise, especially if they're already doing the work of the next level position, it's important to be aware of that because some of those policies, even though they're fair, they may not be right. It's also looking at how do you think about the one that's always harboring right now is this whole idea that the next generation doesn't want to work. And yet, I, I, you know, I think there's every generation that doesn't want to work. And the idea that we taught our children, because um, I've grown children, I taught my children to not only speak up, but to at least express what their ideas are. And we say we want open door policies. We want your ideas. I find it laughable all the time when a manager goes, you know, after that employee survey, who said that? Yeah. <laughs> Take this survey, but also there will be consequences. But I'm I'm glad you brought up the generational thing because I hear that all the time and I find it to be ridiculous because uh, look at the resume of someone who's applying to an entry-level position in your business and honestly look in the mirror and say, when I was applying to entry-level positions, is this what I had on my resume? They've got work projects, they've got internships and externships and all of these different sorts of things that they've done, plus the level of competitiveness in youth sports and in all youth activities is through the roof compared to what I experienced and compared to what I think most of us who are in leadership have experienced. The academic curriculum that young people go through today is significantly more rigorous than it used to be. Mm-hmm. The expectations for AP classes, for how many college courses they're going to take, it's it's deeply elevated. So the idea that they don't want to work is really in conflict with that. It it simply doesn't make sense. They're just different from you. They've got different values because they've grown up in a different experience. And maybe the real conflict is their expectations of you are different from what previous generations expected from their companies and their leadership. And that's something to think about really carefully. I think that is probably one of the best ways I've heard it said, is that it's really a, a conflict of they have different expectations, yes. not of that they don't want to work, but that we have kind of beat into them, <laughs> right? Um, fairness and equity and yeah. take, take leadership roles in school so that, you know, you can get into that college or you can get that job that you want. You've got to be able to demonstrate it. And then when they start demonstrating it and you can't, you know, I'm, I'm, as a uh, HR strategist, I'm constantly talking to managers of what does it actually take to move a person, to promote a person, Mm -hmm. to help them learn what it is. And, you know, if they, the first things out of their mouth, because I go through the why, 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 the first four whys are because they have to be in the, in the job a long time. Well, why? Yeah. What is it that you expect them to learn or prove that they need to know? And if you can't articulate that, why would they wait? Why would they accept something that you can't articulate for them? And I mean, I've worked in enough businesses, unfortunately, or fortunately, maybe, that there is a different timeline, you know, to groom somebody in the oil and gas business takes about eight years. Sure. Well, you should be able to say to learn this job, it takes about eight years to be able to do that eight business cycles. 
you know, when I worked for a retail company, it took four business cycles. But guess what? The business cycle is four weeks or seven weeks. Yeah. So, <laughs> so and and I had other companies that said, I need you to be able to implement something, see the mistakes, fix the mistakes, and then come up with the solution and live with the solution for a little while before I consider that you're ready to move up. Well, I think if you can tell people that, and that's what you're looking for, are people who can bring new ideas, implement new ideas, manage the mistakes that come with every idea that happens. Nothing has ever done that. And then we evaluate you. I think that will help. That's, That's how you help someone understand in a truthful and honest way what it takes to really get to that next level instead of just promoting people because, you know, oh, guess what? Last year they did really well. Yeah, well, okay, give them a, give them a bonus. That doesn't hit the bottom line the same way. Yeah, right. It, it comes back to being honest and being open with clarity about mm-hmm. here's what it takes. I know a lot of managers who think they're doing the right thing because mm-hmm. they think that the the business is a harsh environment. And so mm-hmm. I'm being tough on you to teach you how to exist in this harsh environment. Mm-hmm. But in reality, if we step back and we just look at, you know, here's what's going on here, you're the one who's bringing the toughness to the situation. And that's yeah. your choice to do that. If yeah. you're, If you think you've been forced to do that because that's what was done to you, we just have to look at that really carefully because I understand I've been through that too. I've learned and unlearned a lot of things the hard way um, as I've gone through my 15 years in leadership and management. It's a different time now. We have to be honest about that. I heard a statistic the other day that said that by 2025, 75% of workers will be Gen Z millennial time frame. And yet we've got this thing, AI, artificial intelligence, generative learning, and we know that's moving at a superhuman fast pace. Um, we've got issues with climate. We've got so many issues coming forward. And there's been some research or at least some people participating, writing about what is it, what's necessary for the, for this generation, those people who are in the workplace, if we're going to be successful? What do you think? are the skills or the experiences that people are going to need to embrace to not only be to do meaningful work, but to also be successful and be able to create that blend. Because I don't believe in work-life balance. You have to find a way to blend your work, your passion, and how you make money. I think that if I was to identify one specific thing, a skill Mm -hmm. that will benefit you kind of across the board, it's empathy. And here's why. Mm -hmm. The ability to understand both on an individual and a group level, other people, and maybe Mm -hmm. that's your employees, maybe that's your peers, maybe that's your customer is of Mm -hmm. extreme importance right now. Because Mm -hmm. the idea that we're just sort of like participating in factory culture and churning something out and you're going to like it, whether you actually like it or not, is over. Customers expect highly personalized and things that they feel good about. That's what that's who they want to buy from is something that resonates with their values and somebody that they can trust. That's why we have such an interesting time kind of going on with branding right now. 
Mm-hmm. Same thing with workers. They want to be able to trust you. They want to be able to feel good in this environment. So empathy is one, it's a it's a skill. It can be learned, it can be improved, and it's something that you'll improve on across your life. I work on it every day. Mm-hmm. And um, extremely beneficial. And you can access a lot of other very important skills through, you know, really developing your empathy. I think that's wonderful. Well, tell me, you know, we're at the top of the hour. People are going to want to have this conversation or they're going to want to watch you. <laughs> Come along. Get a hold of <laughs> yeah. So you can find me on TikTok. The handle is Courageous Leadership, um, or you can put in my name, Robin L. Garrett, and I'll come right up. Check out some videos. You can send me a message. Um, or if you want to learn more, my website is robinlgarrett.com. Happy at Work just came out and it is available through all major retailers right now. Um, there's the ebook version, the paperback, and then also the audiobook. So I know a lot of people love to listen. A lot of podcast listeners love to listen to audiobooks. So you can get that through iBooks or Audible or any of the major retailers. So yeah, uh, check it out and follow along. And I would love to hear from you. I encourage you to get it. And I also encourage you to follow Robin. She is, she's really got some good ideas and they're easy to digest and they're available everywhere. We're here every Thursday with a new podcast. So I hope you um, hit that like and share button on your favorite podcast provider. And I will talk to you soon. See ya. Well, as I said before, this is a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for following me. And if you really, really want to make things better and help me get the word out, please go like this wherever you're listening to your podcast. Follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. All of that's in the show notes. And for doing that, go to my website and click on the uh, network and you'll be able to get some free gifts that will help you figure out how to be the best leader that you can be. As I always say, if you like it, share it. If you don't like it, share it, because I guarantee it will definitely help you become the most remarkable leader you can be.